The Agatha Christie. I mean, it only fits that you would do the intro. The Agatha Christie indult, though. Were you expecting that? Okay, folks, you gotta no. you gotta listen for the Agatha Christie indult. Um, I knew what it was. Did you know what it was? No. Okay. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I was so glad that it was kind of um, it was kind of in the vein of Phil, Philip Neary, well, right? That 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 joke that you make sometimes on the show where you say for the audience yeah, for the audience or just for Matt. <laughs> <laughs> this was this was so much fun, and I want to thank you, Matt, for allowing this to happen. Uh, you oh, I mean, you indulged a, a huge nerd part of me uh, yeah. in, in allowing this interview to happen. So thank you. This is this is really fun. You know, we, we've been yeah, talking a lot about the, the guests that we get and the kinds of interviews that we're doing and some of the stuff that we want to try to do. And actually, I also want to just say thank you for that. It's been really fun getting some vision and seeing where, where you're, My pleasure like, what you're looking at. And I, I really appreciate that. It's been fun. But this one in particular, I got so excited when this book came out and I heard about it. And then when I heard that we could possibly get Dr. Holly yeah. Ordway to come on the show and talk about her book, Tolkien's Faith. Which is fantastic. I just about died. I was so excited to talk about... To- I, I love Tolkien. I love The Lord of the Rings. <laughs> I love The Hobbit. I, I'm disappointed in the three Hobbit movies. I think they're trash, but you know, whatever. That's besides the point. <laughs> um, I, I am such a huge fan of all of this. And she has, in this book, given such great insight into the author yeah. of my favorite books. Yeah. And to be able to read into that and to see these... these just fascinating aspects of his life gives me such a deeper appreciation of what these books really are and to be allowed by you uh, to talk to her <laughs> and to just to, to share this interview this is so much fun so I'm, I'm really grateful to you Matt for for helping to put this together because this was this was really cool I must admit I also enjoyed it so it wasn't totally selfless <laughs> we don't always have to be selfless about everything we just have to try to do good be Sam yeah. not Denethor right <laughs> exactly you'll have and to listen to the listen whole episode all the way to the end <laughs> you'll get that reference well Dr. Holly Ordway was with us to talk Tolkien's faith a spiritual biography available from Word on Fire enjoy the show Matt, I just gotta, I gotta take it. I'm so excited about this. I was hoping you would take note of my silence. I did. Oh no, I noticed that that little pause there, and I was grateful for it because I, I, I knew what you were doing. Um, today we get to talk about one of my all-time favorite subjects. Uh, my, I, yeah, let's just say it's my my absolute favorite book. Uh, a huge, huge fan, and not. I don't. All right. I talk about how much I love the Lord of the Rings, how much I love J.R.R. Tolkien. I don't think I'm nearly as as much of a fan and a nerd as some of my friends are. I know some people who have tremendous knowledge of the ins and the outs, and they can get into all this other great stuff. It's fantastic. I don't think I'm quite on their level. But today, to help me get on that level, we have Dr. Holly Ordway with us, and I'm so excited that you're here. Dr. Holly Ordway, welcome to The Tangent. <laughs> Oh, it is a delight to be here, a delight. Now, you have just published through uh, Word on Fire, where you are the professor of faith and culture at the Word on Fire Institute. Um, You're also visiting professor of apologetics at Houston Christian University. Uh, And you've just put out this book through Word on Fire Press uh, on Tolkien's faith, a spiritual biography. Let's go into the book a little bit, but you you just know I'm going to have to start talking with you about other aspects of Tolkien and and the actual like the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit and all that stuff. But first, let's talk about the the spiritual biography that you've written here. 
Absolutely. Bring on the questions. <laughs> so Tolkien famously says that his Lord of the Rings is an is a Catholic book. Yes, he describes it as a fundamentally religious and Catholic work. That's the quote you're thinking of, I yeah, gather. It is, yeah. And that's probably the single most famous quote from, from Tolkien's letters. And I begin with that in the very first chapter of Tolkien's faith. Um, and what I do is I quote the, the full version, because the full version is less well-known than that little snippet. Mm. So he starts out by saying, the Lord of the Rings is a fundamentally religious and Catholic work, unconsciously at first, but consciously in the revision. And that is why, he says, he's cut out all of the religious references. So... Mm. He starts with fundamentally religious and Catholic. He ends with saying he's removed all the overt religious references. Um, he's made sure they haven't gone in. Um, and we know that because we see very little. Um, there is some religion in Middle Earth, but there's there's not much because he's very clear to say the world of Middle Earth is set in a pre-Christian era. Mm. You know, there, It's monotheistic. Arulubitar is God, but it's a world, he says, of natural theology. And I think this is part of unlocking the key of, of the religious and Catholic element, because a lot of people, they know he's a devout Catholic. Um, they know he, he said there's something religious and Catholic about the Lord of the Rings. Well, naturally, how? And a lot of times people have, have looked at it as if it were allegorical, <clears throat> which it's not. That's a whole other topic. Perhaps you can go on a tangent about that later. Please use an allegory. Um, see what I did there? That's great. Um, yeah. Um, but the point is, is that whatever Tolkien might think about allegory in general, he's very clear and 100% correct that the Lord of the Rings, literarily speaking, is not an allegory. And so we can't just say, well, well this, you know, this is Mary, this is Christ, this is the Holy Spirit, et cetera, et cetera. The more we try to just lock things into these patterns, the more we're doing violence to Tolkien's creative vision. Mm. And this creates a lot of really unnecessary tension between Christian readers of Tolkien and non-Christian readers of Tolkien. Because in one sense, they're at odds with each other, but they're both right. Because the Christian readers of Tolkien are 100% right to say there's something deeply Catholic about the Lord of the Rings. But the non-Christian readers of Tolkien are 100% right to say these forced parallels that you're making are obviously just imposed upon the text from your Christian point of view, mm. and they're not authentic to what Tolkien is doing. That's also absolutely correct. And that's why I think it's so important to look at that, that very important word in that, in that quote, it is fundamentally religious and Catholic. He, he's a master of the language. He knows what he's saying. Yeah. At the roots, at the foundations, not overtly, but in the very soil of Middle Earth. And mm. I think once you get that, then Christian readers of the Lord of the Rings can understand it properly to see where those elements really are. And it's so much more interesting when you do that. And then non-Christian readers of Tolkien can then say, oh, okay, we can actually explore this topic without getting whacked over the head with, you know, an evangelizing message. And who, right. who wants that? I mean, it's just, no, no. Um, and that was something I really wanted to do with Tolkien's faith was, and I say this right in the first chapter, I say, well, you know, I am a Catholic. I believe what Tolkien believed, but this book is not about 
whacking you upside the head um, with a with a propagandistic message. It's not even about being, you know, gently evangelizing. It's about saying, this is what Tolkien believed, and this is how it shaped Middle Earth. Come mm. learn about learn about this. It was important to Tolkien, so it should be important to any fan of Tolkien. And whether or not you think that his faith was true, whether or not you think that it was a good element in his life or a negative influence, it's there. And I wanted to invite people to just to first to understand it, because that's the step that we have frankly been missing. And I think that's that's a really key key piece that there's this this missing understanding of his of his faith and you know in that quote that that we start with it's fundamentally catholic unconsciously at first but consciously in the revision now that's that's always the interesting thing to me and as i've been reading this and with all due respect to our other guests who we've had on lately we've we've interviewed a whole bunch of people who have written books and i think their work is wonderful uh i since i Don't got rip into our guests i'm not ripping into man. the guests matt it's okay i like <laughs> i i've really enjoyed all of our guests but i confess that i have been reading tolkien's faith with much more intensity and and fervor than I have the other books because I'm just way more interested in, in Tolkien because, well, I'm kind of a nerd <laughs> and I'm, I'm cool with it. I think it's fun. But that idea of unconsciously at first, that he was writing this with a, a an absolute definite religious outlook and understanding of the world, but that his faith was coming through unconsciously. And then did he start realizing that his faith was was present in the Lord of the Rings, uh, and and so he needed to he needed to edit out the explicit things. That did he even realize that it had been there explicitly? Well, I'm not a, I'm not an expert on the manuscript versions of the Lord of the Rings, mm. so I can't get into those details. Um, but I think you know he's he's stepping back and he's articulating a kind of overall vision. And I think the key point is that he recognizes that this Christian Catholic element is coming in unconsciously, which is another way of putting it, is indirectly or implicitly. Because unconsciously doesn't mean by accident. It's not accidental that this element's mm. there. Mm. It's that it's so much a part of his being. I mean, as he as he says, you know, at one point, um, and I quote this in the book, that he found it impossible to disentangle his faith and his art. Yeah. Two things were just so interconnected that they they were a unity. He was a very integrated man. So naturally his faith is infusing his work. And that means there's doing so in some ways that can can be invisible if you don't know what you're looking for. And I'll give you one example. Mm. Um, so the theme of mercy and pity is a fundamental theme throughout the whole of the Lord of the Rings. And anybody, whatever their religious convictions are, can, can recognize this. And that scene at Mount Doom where, you know, Frodo is, he actually fails at the quest. Um, and Tolkien's quite clear on this because he has been taken past his strength. Mm. And and this again is is a matter of seeing Tolkien's character because you know he had he had fought in the First World War, he had sons who fought in the Second World War, um, he he had suffered a great deal. He did not have this trite kind of hallmark card. God won't give you more to deal with than you can handle. 
He knew better. <laughs> he knew better. Um, he would have seen good men broken right. by what we would now call PTSD, um, what they then called shell shock. He knew that you could be given so much of a burden that you broke. And he gives us Frodo who breaks. But the point is that Frodo had given <clears throat> he had given everything he had, um, under you know in obedience, you know trying to fulfill the quest, and the key thing, he had shown mercy to Gollum, had not killed him earlier when he had the chance, even yeah. though under worldly terms it was a sensible thing to do. Same with with Bilbo, he you know he didn't kill him, he allowed him to live, even though it possibly a foolish move, and because of that, that's why Gollum is there. Hmm. Now on the surface of the story the narrative level of the story it's all a very natural development of the actions of the characters of their personalities of their choices it is a completely finely woven narrative there's no there's no weak points there but we also know from tolkien's letters that he also saw this as a theological meditation on the last clause of the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. What was it like for Frodo to be taken to the point where he could no longer resist the temptation to put on the ring? Hmm. And so that's the theological meditation. And also the fact that it is providence that operates here. You hmm. know, Frodo didn't know that Gollum was going to save the quest. But providentially, his acts of mercy and pity are what allow providence to operate and have the success of the quest. All of this is deeply Catholic. And there's even one more layer there. You know, there's, we must never fall into an either or because there's a lot of, there's a lot of Christian um, elements in Lord of the Rings. I've written a whole book on how he um, drew on influences from modern literature in Lord of the Rings. But anybody who's read a little bit of Tolkien knows that a major influence was Old English, um, you know, Germanic, Norse, all that, that entire pagan mythology is a major contributing influence. Hmm. It's a both end. You can't can have both of these things. Um, so we have all like we have the, you know, the Germanic named dwarves. We have all sorts of we have all sorts of elements, you know, from the Germanic sagas. But one element that is very distinctly Christian is the fact that mercy is considered a good thing because in those heroic sagas, mercy is, is, is a, is a wimpy thing. It's not, it's not a heroic virtue in the pagan world. Right. It's a sign of weakness. So the very fact that in this epic, which has all sorts of, you know, influences from the sagas that mercy is presented as a virtue in such a way that we don't even think about it. We just see it as beautiful. That is one of those fundamentally religious and Catholic themes, because that we take it for granted, but that is a Christian idea. Yeah. And, you know, you, you touch on on this idea of mercy and pity being so central to the Lord of the Rings as you get to the end of, of Tolkien's time serving in, in World War One, as the war comes to an end. And he has now been he's been spared uh, his trench fever means that he he can't stay on the front lines, so his life is spared. But he loses uh, two very close friends in the Battle of the Somme. And he, I, I think you, you make the connection of, of this reflection that he has on mercy and pity uh, in, in Frodo, in a very particular way in relationship to Gollum, but also there's this conversion that Frodo undergoes. He says, it, it's a pity that Bilbo didn't kill him when he had the chance. Mm -hmm. 
And then it's Gandalf responding to Frodo saying, pity. It's pity that stopped him. And so understanding the two senses of the word, which is a, a great, uh, just a great linguist sort of a move, you know, from, from Tolkien, yeah. the professor of language, that he, would, that he would pull this out. But he says, no, it was pity that stopped Bilbo from killing, Fro- uh, from killing Gollum when he had the chance. Is many live who should die and many die who should live. And it's this, it's a very human reflection, right? Confronting that mystery of death. Yeah, and it's it's very human and it's very humble because not everyone comes to that conclusion. There are a lot of people in the modern day who are quite willing to deal out death and life because they think they do have the ability to stand in judgment. It's terrifying. Um, and Tolkien had this deep humility, you know, because he he fought against the Germans in World War One. And there's never a sense that that he thought that that was the, a wrong thing to do. He he you know he he fought for his country, you know he did his service and and that was a good thing. But he simultaneously, again, this is a both and. He also felt pity for the Germans who were killed. Um, and when he's talking about the Germans in the Second World War, again, he's very nuanced. He denounces Hitler in no uncertain terms. He's absolutely clear quite early on um and actually c.s lewis also saw quite early much earlier than other people in england what a monster hitler was but tolkien calls him under a demonic influence and he is not being metaphorical i mean he had a, a, a true belief in the reality of the spiritual world and, and he's not mincing words he's under a demonic influence it's, it's hideous but he has compassion for the german people that they have been misled that they've been brought you know he says they have virtues you know they're they're as brave as we are Mm. um and yet he knows that this war has to be fought because hitler has to be stopped um and i think it's that that compassion that sees people as individual human souls each of them precious each with a story to tell he he has to fight if he has to fight but he would rather not. Mm. And he certainly isn't going to stand in judgment and say, you should live and you should die. And I know better. Um, he, he knows his own soul well enough to say, I cannot stand in judgment. Very wise, I think. Yeah. That Catholic upbringing that he has. Uh, so from the time his mother converts to Catholicism and brings her sons with her into the church, uh, into his, his being so, so much under the influence of the oratory fathers. And then his own, you, you write about sort of his, his own just embrace on a very, very personal level of, of how he must live out his faith more intensely as a, as a young man uh, mm-hmm. in, his, in his university years. And then, of course, when he's, in his, when he's serving in the army, um, and then how his faith continues to influence everything that he does um, in, into his marriage with, uh, with his wife and her own conversion to Catholicism uh, herself. All of these, all these different pieces come together. Um, and they're informing his entire worldview. And I think that's one of the powerful things in the, in your book that you're, that you're doing is giving us that insight into the, the, the view of the world that he has leading up to his writing career. Because of course, all of this happens before he's published, before he's written down anything. And so all of this stuff as it's, as it's coming, this is his, this is his vision of, of the world and his place in it. Um, so where do we find then 
or at least in your opinion, like where would you find just most, most explicitly or, or, or explicit? I don't know. That's not even the right word. See, now I'm just overexcited about this and I'm going to start trying to come up with too many questions at the same time. All right. Let me, let me rephrase. Let me regroup and rephrase here. Cause I, I, I got something here. All right. Tolkien's faith is obviously extraordinarily important to him in everything that he does and in everything that he writes. There are some ways that we see it very explicitly. Lembus bread, the whey bread, so clearly evocative of the Eucharist. Uh, the idea of the, the suffering that Frodo undergoes as he, as he carries this great burden that gets heavier and heavier and heavier. Um, all of these, these things, like carrying the cross, um, taking on the, the, the great challenge, facing evil and, and knowing that there will be good that triumphs, that there is something better at the end. Um, those are the, the, the kind of explicit ways that we see the faith coming out. Where do you see the most hidden examples, the most subtle examples, where Tolkien's faith is suddenly just there if you have eyes to see it? Well, that's a, that's a very interesting question, um, and it's one that I, I can give it. It took me a long time to come up with and to ask. <laughs> <laughs> well, this, this you were like, trying so hard to not use the word allegory. I know. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> well, we're going to come back to that. I have a whole a whole slew of questions about that. Well, see, the, the word evocative. Yes, that's that's the way. Well, let's take, for instance, the Marian elements in the Lord of the Rings. Okay. Pretty much people will, will go immediately to say, oh, Galadriel, she's a Marian figure. Okay. You know, in some in some respects, you know, she, she is. That's unquestionable. But people tend to stop there as if they, you know, okay, well, they've got, they've got her. But one of the things I realized, going back to his being really formed by the Oratorian Fathers, and I'm very happy to see already the influence of Tolkien's faith in the way that you framed that comment, his, his influence from the Oratorian Fathers, plural, because most people who looked at Tolkien's biography know that he was under the, after his mother died and he was left a complete orphan, he and his little brother were, you know, under the guardianship of Father Francis Morgan of the Birmingham Oratory. And most people just think, okay, well, Father Francis, he's the father figure and we're done. But he was one of a whole community of fathers at the Birmingham Oratory. Um, and so he's deeply shaped, you know, not just by his relationship with Father Francis, who does become a true second father to him, but by the whole oratorian community. And so one of the things I did was a really a deep dive into oratorian spirituality. And then I began to see that it lit up Tolkien's spirituality in an amazing way. And it makes sense. His entire most formative part of his life, from his boyhood, from, you know, um, 10 years old until certainly until he was 17 he went off to you know to Exeter College he is being shaped by oratory and spirituality and he retains these connections throughout his life well one of the main emphases of the spirituality of the oratory of St. Philip Neri is an emphasis on humility and humor mm. humility as an essential part of the spiritual life as a counterbalance to pride and a very particular characteristic of the oratory of St. Philip Neri is the use of humor, especially silly humor, to help cultivate that humility. And this is very distinctive with the Oratorians. I mean, you don't find silly jokes to be part of the spiritual life of all, like every you know order of religious. Um, it's it is my charism. But it's absolutely an element of the charism of the Oratorians. Right, yeah. 
And this helps to explain a lot of, of the way that Tolkien was willing to be extremely silly all the way through to his, his adult life. I mean, I, I admit that I was previously a bit boggled by this because here he is, you know, okay, he likes jokes, he likes humor, but the way that he would behave in public sometimes it seemed almost a little embarrassing. Like, <laughs> like aren't, you, aren't you an Oxford professor? Should you be a little more dignified? What? And then I realized after, when I was researching Tolkien's faith, he was living out the very direct teachings of St. Philip, yeah. which was to use humor to take yourself down a peg so that you wouldn't get puffed up. Yeah. He is deliberately turning it. It's, it's self-directed humor. Make himself look silly so that he won't be tempted to be, I'm the big shot. So all this is to say, this is an important aspect of Tolkien's whole faith. Well, look at the Lord of the Rings. Look at Middle-earth. Where do we see the figures who embody both humility, littleness, and humor? The hobbits. Hobbits, yes. Mm -hmm. The hobbits are very Marian, because that's a quality of um, Marian spirituality is humility. The Magnificat, you know, that is a whole prayer of humility. Uh, And it's also very oratorian. So here we see that the, the whole being the personality of the hobbits as being the ordinary people they're they're weak they're nobody special um they have no special strength no special wisdom and yet they save middle earth they embody the humble they are the little people um and they're also the ones who who bring us the moments of humor in the story this is a classic example of the fundamentally religious and catholic quality of the work that you only can understand if you know the oratory and spirituality that he was steeped in. Mm. And so I, I was not aware of the way that he behaved in public. So re- like reading about that, that piece, the, that there's behavior in public that's just kind of silly. It's, oh, there's moments of the, of that humor though, that comes out in his writing in the Lord of the Rings. I, my favorite all time favorite is the, the Bilbo Baggins line at his birthday party. When he says, I know less than half of you half as well as I should like, <laughs> and I like less than half of you half as well as you deserve. And then he just waits for everybody to get the joke. And he writes about waiting for everybody to get the joke. And it's, it's so funny. <laughs> and it's, uh, I love it. I just, I just love it. And I can't think now if this is in the, only in the movie or if this is also in the book. Uh, but when he's listing all the family names of the hobbits and he says, Proudfoots, and somebody yells, Proud Feet. <laughs> In, it's in the book. That's, okay, that's, I'm glad it's in the book. I know it's in the movie, and as it's in the movie, the, it, it pans to the hobbit who's who's just yelled proud feet, and he kind of harumps and puts both his feet up on a on the table and crosses them. <laughs> it's this very definitive, you know. I I love that kind of stuff. It's it's so funny. So I'm glad that he's because he's able to do this now. Given that his his joke with Bilbo is also some wordplay. Can we start to shift here? And I want to talk about his, his use of, of language, and that's going to get us into allegory and myth, which I think is really important here. Uh, Tolkien and his love for languages. And so he writes, he writes his entire saga of Middle-earth and the entire mythology that goes into it, the Silmarillion, uh, Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, everything that surrounds Middle-earth. He has to invent languages to do this. He goes through the trouble to actually create a language <laughs> he translates the psalms into elvish <laughs> just well, because that, that, 
Well, that's that's actually that's a bit of a stretch. I want to I want to sort of correct that. We want we want to pause the enthusiasm here. <laughs> I have no evidence of him translating the Psalms into Elvish. Not, um, oh, I'm sorry, I'm misreading my notes. That says prayers. You're right. You're you're absolutely right. Not the Psalms, but but he yes, translates yes. the prayers of the Rosary into the into Elvish. <laughs> Who's praying the Rosary in Elvish? Well, no, actually, and actually, here I do actually want to stop and 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 sort of do a slight correction, if I if I may, because this is something in our enthusiasm we can come away with the mistaken idea that that he did pray the Rosary in Elvish or something like that, which he didn't. Right, uh, he didn't. What we have is that he he wanted to practice his Elvish script because not only does he invent new languages, he invents new scripts to write yeah. them in. So he has these this Elvish script, um, and he's practicing writing in Elvish. So what he does is he's, he's, he's using various texts to practice this. Sometimes mm. he's using it just for transliteration, putting English into the Elvish letters. Sometimes he's actually translating. And he uses a variety of texts. They're not all of them religious. So he, for instance, one of them he uses is God Save the King. Um, okay. Another one. Another one that he uses is um, from um, the Walrus and the Carpenter song in, in Lewis Carroll's Through the Looking Glass. Yes. Uh, so when he's doing these these bits of translation and transliteration, all that all the prayers they're they're fragmentary. There's not a complete set of them. Mm. He's using them as experiments in translation, um, and and so he's not actually setting out to say I'm going to do the rosary in Elvish. I'm going to do Elvish. <laughs> he's not. And I and I think that's a, I think that's important because we can we can go in a sort of we can we can assume certain ways of his piety that that are accurate. But what it does tell us is that when he sat down to do these experiments in translation, what were the texts that came most readily to his mind that he knew by heart? Mm. Um well, the Walrus and the Carpenter, apparently. He had a prodigious memory. Um, but um, he he had very naturally these prayers that came to mind, and they were meaningful to him. Mm. So he, he returned to them often. And when he was doing his experiments translation, he's thinking through theologically, mm-hmm. what, what, how do I communicate um, theological ideas in the mode of my secondary world. And so he does different versions of the Lord's Prayer where he's he's experimenting with different ways of phrasing it so that he can think through how to shape his Elvish language so that it conveys true theology. Mm. So we see here Tolkien's seriousness about his theology shown in those Catholic prayers, uh, shown in the the, the the translation that he's doing. So I think it's not so much like, oh, he translated them into Elvish. It was, they were so important to him that he drew upon them mm. when he was doing, doing this work. Now, why do you think it is that, well, at least according to the urban legend that I've heard, I've never independently verified this, but it's possible to major, it's possible to major in Klingon in certain American universities, but not possible to major in Elvish. Uh, what, what what are we working with there? I, I to me again, not knowing the Star Trek universe quite well enough, I don't want to cast aspersions or anything, but it seems to me that Elvish is the far more important language to know. <laughs> Tell well, me why no, no, no. I'm correct, because I know that I'm correct, but I would like <laughs> you to explain <laughs> why. <laughs> Correct. Um, I don't think that, I don't actually think it is possible to major in, in Klingon anywhere, but okay. yeah. Um, and I say this as somebody who is 
a Star Trek fan as well. And when I was a teenager and watching Star Trek Next Generation, I actually at one point owned a copy of the Klingon Dictionary. So I've got my credentials here. Um, That's so cool. (laughs) But I never never studied it. I never studied Klingon, just to be clear. Um, So I think, again, looking at his achievement, what we have with Star Trek is we have a, a really interesting science fictional world with really interesting aliens. I think they're interesting anyway. Um, I will fight any people who, who argue that they're not. Um, anyway, um, and so they have they have these Klingons, and they need them to be able to speak some lines in Klingon in the show. And so they make up some words, you know, a, a batleff and, you know, this, that, and the other. Um, and so then someone decides to kind of geek out and, and make a vocabulary list. But it's 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 post it's post you know post production as it were it's it's after the fact um, and it's kind of cobbled together um, fun exercise um, and I think you you know get people interested in languages and they they probably carried it further it's all good fun Tolkien is a linguist he is a pro um, mm-hmm. and he and here's the interesting thing he actually does the opposite of the Star Trek thing Star Trek had the characters and the story. And they wanted them to have a language to speak, so they invented. Tolkien actually started with the languages, um, and he often said that he he all the stories flowed out of needing needing someone to be able to speak the languages that he was inventing. So it's the linguistic inspiration is actually primal, mm. and this is I mean Tolkien is an amazing genius because as much I mean, I've spent thirty odd years of my life seriously thinking and writing about Tolkien. And I haven't even scratched the surface of his linguistic stuff because I am not a linguist. I'm a literary critic. My PhD's name is literature. He's he's got this whole other aspect where you have other serious scholars who can delve into it because they they too are linguists and they can look at things like you know the 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 clensions of verbs in in Quenya and they they can see how interesting it is. Um, I I I can't speak to that because I'm not a linguist. Yeah. But we have Tolkien who is creating languages realistically because he knew how languages actually evolve. And so he sets up like, oh, well, here we have proto Sindarin and here's how it changes and here's how the vowels shift. And, <laughs> and, oh, they, they, you know, they will, they'll sing songs in them, of course, you know? So it's, it, it's basically the, the germ, the seed of all of middle earth is, you know, declensions of, you know, of words in, in Elvish. Mm. <laughs> Interested in the languages first, so and then he creates people to speak them. Yeah, and so from this this world that he's building through language, he's now got the people who can speak them. He's got the characters that can that can communicate in in those languages. Um, but the value of language, the value of of, of the spoken word, the written word, uh, comes out very clearly. This is why the, the the songs that are throughout the Lord of the Rings are are constantly kind of being referenced. And uh, there's th- this is in the old scripts or the old legends or the old stories. It, it just keeps coming up and coming up, and you you keep seeing it over and over again. Um, well, here's the authenticity of it because he didn't say, "Oh, hmm, they're stuck on Weathertop, and I need to come up with an old story for Aragorn to tell." Oh, golly, I better come. Up with something no he's like oh well the story of of you know baron luthien this is this is an existing story in the legendarium of which there's a whole enormous fabric well here's one and it, and it and unfolds into all sorts of different ramifications so he just pulls from that yeah so why does it feel so authentic because it is it feels like it's drawing from an existing mythology 
because it is. It's an incredible <laughs> achievement. Well, so, right. Within the world of Middle-earth, there is already a mythology that everybody who's involved in Middle-earth knows. And so we're reading a myth that they already know about, that they have also become characters in. And actually, we, we kind of get into this uh, a little bit as Sam and Frodo are coming to the end of the quest and that they're talking about, will there be songs? Will there be stories told about this? And, and what will happen? And they'll talk about how uh, Frodo was the bravest hobbit of all of them and how Frodo says, but he wouldn't have gotten very far without Sam. And they have this, this beautiful moment where he's talking about how there will be songs, there will be these stories told, but they already know that there's such a thing as telling the story, that there's such a thing as the myth and the legend and all of these things. So yeah, they're, they're working and operating from this place. But can we talk a little bit about why the myth is so important and how myth is different from allegory? Because as you so rightly say, Tolkien's not writing an allegory, but he is writing a myth. Let's talk well, about not, myth I, and language. I, well, no, I would actually, I would actually disagree with you there. I don't okay. think he's writing a myth because he, he's not, he's, he's writing, he's writing a, a, a story, right. which is not the same thing as a myth. Um, now it has mythic resonances, right. um, but that's not the same thing. So I've, um, I've read like, in places where, they, where he says that English is, is a language that because it derives from so many others, that's it, it's in search of a mythology to kind of give it a give it a grounding. Is is he looking to give basically the English language its own mythology? So through Middle Earth, that's where it comes from. There's a famous letter in which he says that he had that as an ambition to give to his country ah. a mythology of their own. Yeah. Um, and interestingly, he says that the Arthurian legends um, don't quite fit the bill because they're explicitly Christian. Um, so they actually they articulate the truths of the faith or not, um, depending on the, <laughs> depending on the story, <laughs> uh, a little bit too overtly. A mm. myth to work needs to work at a very subliminal level um it needs to be um it to mean as it you know in itself and it's in this way and this is a way that tolkien actually helped c.s lewis to become a christian because he talks about the way that the story of christ is a myth it's a myth in the same way that the story of like you know Balder and the Norse myths, um, or any of these other, you know, sagas, the Norse myths that told, that Lewis loved so much. You know, there's a there's something that you know kind of moved Lewis in in reading about you know Baldor who died and you know and rose and that that kind of thing. And he he was sort of how do I how do I encounter Christianity, which makes this claim about a dying and rising God, um, and he couldn't kind of come to grips with it. And Tolkien helps him to see that Christianity is not just um, a set of doctrines because Lewis had been separating the two. He, he had this mythic response to stories, you know, from the old Norse and from the Greek stories, but he was trying to approach Christianity purely doctrinally, um, propitiation, sanctification, all yeah. very abstract. And he just couldn't bring the two things together. Yeah. And Tolkien says, so Tolkien says, it's actually, it is a myth. So the story of Christ, it, it you know, in effect, the way I would explain it is that it it shines with its own light. It it is itself meaningful, and then the doctrines become things we can say about it. But the thing about Christianity is that it's a myth that also happened in history. It's the true myth, mm. and that's the insight that allowed Lewis to connect the two pieces and and to move forward. Mm. Right. But the, and and even with that understanding, the true myth, which 
I, I love that phrase. It's it's such a, a beautiful way of saying it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but even even there, Tolkien very much takes the more subtle approach. Um, Lewis is is far more explicit. I mean, if you can't figure out that Aslan is Jesus, then you're just missing the whole point of the entire legend, right? <laughs> like <laughs> he might as well have just just said it, just so you know. Aslan means Jesus, um, <laughs> Lion oh, Jesus. Yeah. That's it, you know. Uh, but I'm sorry. Chronicles are still not an allegory, though. Right, right, and but so that's where like we're seeing like he's he's really clearly articulates and and look, I I thoroughly enjoyed reading the Chronicles of Narnia um, as as a kid. They were they were big, and I, in fact, I read those before I read the Hobbit, and I think it was because I read the Chronicles of Narnia that I was able to read the Hobbit and and kind of get in. I was used to so, some of the language and some of the the symbolism and and stuff, and that actually I think it was a great. Great propedeutic mm. for, for getting into Tolkien. But when you read The Lord of the Rings, when you read The Hobbit, you're going to see so many figures that they they hit so many different notes. They're different figures. Uh, there are moments when Gandalf is a Christ figure. There are moments when Aragorn is a Christ figure where there's these, these elements of, of Christianity, but they're shining in different characters, not only one character. Um, whereas Aslan is always... Jesus and everybody's trying to get close to him and, and be similar to him, right? Um, Tolkien is is very subtle in the way that he that he does it all, um, and it's 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 really powerful. And yet, not so subtle that you can't pick up on certain things. I have a a kid here in the parish who is, um, well, I'm worried about him. He's getting so into into Tolkien um, that it's the first thing that he talks about when he sees me, um, and he also for some reason finds Sauron hilarious. I don't know why, but he thinks maybe you can give me some insight into why he thinks Sauron is so funny. But for him, Sauron is hysterical. Um, I think he just thinks that that Sauron was so so caught up in himself that he he just he blew it all, and and he finds it really funny that that that's how evil works and just melts in on itself. But well, that's, actually, that's very that's Tolkien's own perspective yeah. on Sauron, and he he even says um, in an interview that it's a mistake a mistake to see Sauron as a, some sort of heroic figure. He says he's really just a toad. Yeah. Um, so and that's that in Tolkien's view is the is the big lie of evil trying to make the evil figure look impressive when in fact evil is always pathetic mm. if we can just see it rightly. So I think your your young man in your parish is, is actually seeing he's, seeing something quite clearly. Well and, and he's he's so on to things. This is the, the thing I love. He's ten years old now, maybe nine years old, but he's he's picking up on all of these these really important themes. And he, he comes to me the other day. And he starts. He leads with. He always leads with a joke about Sauron. Um, and I, I've never met somebody who just invents jokes about a, about a fictitious character. But he does, and it it cracks me up. But then he says, you know, March twenty fifth is very important in Lord of the Rings. And you know what March twenty fifth is, don't you, Father? I said, yeah, I do. And he goes, it's the Annunciation. So here's this child who's he's Catholic and he he gets his faith like he he knows what he's talking about, but he also is seeing that Tolkien is deliberately using March 25th. Yeah. So 
let's let's dive in there a little bit because as as much as as Tolkien is subtle, he also is not afraid to bring in some things that if if you're clever enough to know and and actually that's one of the things I appreciate about how you write Tolkien's faith here you you include notes about what the church is about what the church teaches about different things so that somebody who's not catholic and who might not pick up on it they can get the vocabulary that you're using and they can understand why this was important to Tolkien so you're giving the the fuller insight but let's talk a little bit about those those moments when he is kind of explicit like throwing in March 25th well there i mean he's he, you know he's this is part of his cleverness, right? Because, you know, March 25th, well, well, first of all, it's, it's actually quite interesting because in, in Tolkien fandom, people will some say, but, but actually in the Shire calendar, March 25th wasn't March 25th. Like, okay. Yes. So because we all Tolkien also invented an entire different calendar. But, <laughs> yeah. In addition to a language, right. he invented a whole different way of counting time because why exactly. not? It, why not, right? But I think here, here we're seeing that Tolkien is showing that awareness of he's simultaneously writing in the world of his story, but he's also aware of his readers. Um, Tolkien is so sophisticated. There's so much going on. I mean, just to hearken, to make a little tangent, um, back to um, see once you said that, I just can't help but play with that. It's great. Um, that that moment where Frodo and Sam are talking about how will they be in a story that is actually quite postmodern. That's very meta textual. You have characters in a story talking about being in a story, which they are and wondering what the reader will think about them as characters. Tolkien was meta before it was cool. (laughs) That, that is actually just really skillful modern storytelling and that's why lord of the rings is a novel it has many characteristics of a saga in it but it is fundamentally a, a, it is a novel it has sophisticated modern techniques in it um modern characterization modern or postmodern use of meta perspectives it's it's very it's very complex and i think and this is something i wrote about in tolkien's modern reading it's because he was very much a man of the 21st century and, and familiar with modern literature. He's doing, again, that both and. He's writing a book that's fundamentally shaped by medieval and, you know, saga literature, but is also for 21st century readers. And he's using every technique available to him to do this in a sophisticated way. And so we get these marvelous scenes like that. Mm. So, again, coming back, and he does it so skillfully that we don't, Unlike other authors who would stop to say, look at how clever I am and how I'm being very meta. Aren't I clever? Tolkien is just doing it so smoothly that we don't even notice it. We're just carried on with the story. Yeah. Same <laughs> thing with things like the dates. March 25th. Um, um, so, okay. For the characters in the story, that date has no significance in itself. And and that's why Tolkien is able to say that this is, you know, that the Lord of the Rings is not... A Christian story because the world of Middle Earth is set in a pre Christian past. It hit chronologically, the Annunciation hasn't happened yet. So, for the characters, December 25th, when they set up from Rivendell, and March 25th, when the quest is completed, can have no meaning for the characters. And he knows that. Um, and he, yeah, of course. Mm. But, he, but he says that December 25th turned up accidentally just in the chronology, but he decided to keep it because of the resonance. And that leads him to, to make March 25th to to tie in because he was aware that he has readers in 
the actual outside world for whom the Annunciation and the Nativity are historical events. So he has that dual sense, the character's world, their perceptions. He does nothing that's false to that within the story. Um, But then for the reader, we have, if we want to think about it, an additional element. This is his sophistication as as a writer. And I I think it's so powerful. I mean, for those of us who have that historical perspective, Christmas, the birth of Christ, the Annunciation, the, the... the coming of Christ, he's 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 on his way, and then to know that it's it's on March twenty fifth that the ring is destroyed, uh, and so on on what better day than to to say the Annunciation, Christ is coming into the world and he's going to destroy the power of evil. It's it's just so powerful. Um, can Father, can I go on a small tangent? Go for it. So one of the footnotes in your book um, <laughs> spoke about how skeptical Tolkien was about modern technology. And, and I thought it was a nice tie-in that you were talking about his, his skill as a modern writer. Um, but this, this skepticism with modern technology, I know it's from a different book that you wrote, but I immediately was like, man, I just got to ask about that because, he, I mean, his, his language was so strong, you know, that so-called labor-saving machinery. And he said, he used to say, you only move the slavery out of sight. So it's much more effective because nobody knows what's going on. Like his language is so strong. Um, can you just break open his his relationship with technology for me? This is such an interesting question. And you're right. It, I do give a – this is just the one footnote in this book, but I give a whole basic chapter unpacking that in Tolkien modern reading. You know, a lot of people do think that Tolkien was just a Luddite, that he just hated technology in general, and that was absolutely not the case. Um, he was actually quite interested in modern technology. Mm. So give a couple of examples. Um, he – um, was a he was a he was a typewriter nerd. Um, he had something like three different typewriters. They had different key keyboards to do phonological. I love it. And like typewriters seem retro, but it would be as if today he had you know the latest you know iPads, voice right, acting yeah. software, and this and that. Right. He was a typewriter nerd, um, and he used ballpoint pens when they were a brand new invention mm. over from America of all places. Um, and he uses them in his in his letters and his again we take that for granted, but that was a a new thing. His friend C.S. Lewis used dip pens his entire life. Tolkien's like, oh, ballpoint pen, cool. Um, I'll use it. And he enjoyed riding in cars and driving cars. He even he loved driving cars. But now here we get to the rub. What he objected to very strongly was the way that within his lifetime, because he was born in 1892. Um, pre-automobile, in his Mm. lifetime, he saw the usefulness of the automobile, and he saw how road makers just blasted through the countryside willy-nilly, you know, paving everything. Mm. As he said, destroying the very beauty of the countryside that people were driving to come to see. Um, Mm. So he's very aware that a thing that could be good was actually being used to blight the landscape. Um, Pollution was horrific in his day. And again, we have to think about the context. We are the beneficiaries of a lot of legislation about air pollution that we take for granted. Mm. In Leeds, when he was um, a young father, the air pollution was so bad that it rotted the curtains. Um, Like the chemicals in the air were so strong that the fabric of the curtains was breaking apart in their house where they were only living a couple of years. I mean, really like right. off the charts air pollution um and mm. london i mean london until they 
brought in pollution controls, you know, the London smogs killed thousands of people, like killed them. <laughs> so he was very aware that technology often came with a huge price tag when it was abused. Mm. Late in his life, um, there was a very interesting interview. Um, and the interviewer was actually trying to lead him to say, all technology is awful. Um, and he wouldn't bite. He actually wouldn't bite. That's where he said, no, no, cars, I like, I like them. Um, I just don't like mm -hmm. what they do on the roads. And the, and the interviewer, you can almost hear him at the, it would say, well, what about factories? And he says, well, it depends. Depends on what kind of factory. Depends on the size of the factory. Mm -hmm. And he says, something that's good at 1,000, I'm paraphrasing, 1,000, might be terrible at 10,000. Mm -hmm. so he had a very nuanced view. Um, and again, that quote, which I found quite interesting about labor-saving technology, mm -hmm. he's not in principle against technology, but he's just keenly aware of how it can be misused. Like, okay, you say we're saving saving labor, but are we really? Um, right. Where Where is the labor now happening? Um, is it now behind the scenes where the people can be exploited invisibly rather than seen and you know, noticed. So it's a very, very nuanced approach. And I think you, you see that um, even in Middle Earth, because you have um, Sourman who misuses technology. Mm -hmm. But then if you think about it, look at the Shire. They have a mill. That's technology. Um, look at Gondor, that amazing architecture. Well, there must have been technology to, to build that. So... There's there's nuance there. He's just very aware that intentionality matters. Um, right. again, it's and the, and the dwarves they dig too deep, right? And yeah, it's not that they dig; it's that they right. dug too deep and too greedily. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the key. I I was so struck by it because because it it seems to me almost like a prophetic word, you know, like I, it. it <laughs> Bold statement. <laughs> the The misuse of technology could be one of the, I don't know, one of the staples of our modern culture, right? Like, there's nothing wrong with computers. Tolkien loved loved his typewriters. I like Macs, right? But the fact of the matter is that so many people use computers for the wrong stuff, right? Like, if you look at the one of the greatest epidemics in our culture, it's got to be the sin of pornography. Yeah. You know, so like... Just, just having seen this man, who is obviously so wise, you know, say something like that, I was, I was just immediately struck by it. Thank you, thank you for di yeah. diving into it. For I me. mean, we're we're almost able to make a, a line from from Tolkien to Joni Mitchell uh, and Big Yellow Taxi. You know, hey, big money, pave paradise, put up a parking lot. <laughs> and now, if we do that, though, this is this this is going to break down my my great theory. Uh, which is, so I, I have this thing, Dr. Ordway, where I think uh, St. Augustine of Canterbury comes to England to evangelize. And then ha having evangelized, that leads to Thomas a Becket, uh, which, which leads us to the Canterbury Tales and Geoffrey Chaucer, uh, which really, if we have then Old English or Middle English, um, the first work of, of literature in, in the English language, then that leads us eventually to Shakespeare. And I think that without Shakespeare, I don't think we get to somebody like Tolkien. Um, there has to be a development of, of English literature up to that point. And, and I think that Shakespeare is a necessary component of that development. And so everything from there on leads us to, to Tolkien. And so I'm hesitant to jump then from Tolkien to Joni Mitchell. I just don't think she ranks in that great <laughs> lineage quite in the same way. <laughs> but anyway. Well, <laughs> branches yes. you know, whatever you, 
I really, Matt, I really like that connection um, for a number of reasons. One is I, I absolutely agree. I think he is prophetic. I think it's one of the many reasons why people globally really love Lord of the Rings. It speaks to the modern condition. Um, and it speaks to the modern condition because, I mean, Tolkien was a man of the 20th century. He kind of saw it all mm-hmm. um, in his lifetime. It was a long lifetime. Um, you know, he when he was born... Horse-drawn carriages were the main means of transportation. When he died, there were supersonic jets. I mean, incredible. And and he was discerning. He he looked at the signs of the times. He was Mm -hmm. interested in the news. Um, He was quite sort of teed off about people who thought that he just ignored the news. He said, I know, I read I read the newspaper every day. He said he reads three newspapers. He took an interest in these things, an intelligent, educated, Mm -hmm. thoughtful interest. And we see that in the Lord of the Rings. We see environmental degradation. We see exploitation um, of people. We see the abuse of technology. And I, I think it's not a coincidence that Tolkien reverses the myth of the ring. Because in all ancient myths and legends, every quest that involves a magic item is a quest to secure it to find it to use it Mm. but tolkien reverses it they've got the ring the whole quest is about relinquishing power relinquishing Mm. technology um, accepting that they aren't going to be able to do things Mm. and in humility letting that go that is prophetic right it's It's the modern just because we can doesn't mean we should yeah Okay, so then that's making me think of of two two of the points that come up often when you talk about Lord of the Rings with people. Um, one is for I think for people who don't fully grasp the whole story. Uh, why didn't the eagles just take them to Mount Doom? Okay, and two, what the heck, Tom Bombadil? What are you doing? Right, and so I think I think these are are two important points though because all right. As, as you're describing this, relinquishing power, relinquishing that, that use of, of technology. Well, the eagles weren't subject to any of that. The eagles are eagles. They, they are who they are. And so they don't, they don't have any need of it. But Well, actually, but no, let's, let's come back to that point, yeah. though, because let's, let's do a thought experiment. What if they had asked the eagles to take the ring? The eagles are still creatures of Middle Earth. And right. we have, I mean, they speak, they have sentience, they have a king. How are we to assume that they would not give in to the power of the ring? And Boromir tried to seize the ring. Right. If we've got an eagle with, with Frodo in his claws, the eagle might say, oh, I'm going to become king of all Middle-earth. I will become not just king of the eagles. And then we get an eagle lord, mighty and, you know, you know mm. the winged terror. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the fact that Frodo as a hobbit, the embodiment of humility, the weak one, he being the one to carry the ring in secret. I mean, apart from the fact that like an eagle flying, that they would see him. I mean, he's got an <laughs> They're definitely going to notice it. Yeah. They're going to notice. Um, so I think both in terms of plot coherence, they can't entrust the ring to the eagles because they can't trust that the eagles won't seize the ring. I wholeheartedly agree. Just so we're clear, I don't agree with the people who think that the eagles uh, not taking them to, to Mount Doom are a plot hole. I think I think exactly with you that <laughs> it's a strength of, of the plot and it's a recognition of the, the whole fabric here. Um, mm. But I, it, the eagles are fascinating. Because they yeah. they seem to play such a pivotal role in these in these key moments, 
And so it's it's an eagle who who carries Gandalf, um, who gets him away from from the tower, right? From Orthanc. Um, it's it's the eagles who are sent in to rescue, and that there's that there are, are enough eagles even to rescue Gollum, is <laughs> is a powerful statement, right? That yeah. they they yeah. go in with the, the eagles are, are are then also a sign of hope. They they are aid when it's necessary. Uh, they're they're a sign of hope, um, and and yet I mean. Given that they fly and they have wings, can we can we think of them uh, with a parallel to angels? Uh, is is no. that no? Okay, thank you. Right, no. appreciate it. No, no, I I, I accept fully. <laughs> I, but I'll tell you something interesting though. It's, no, um, but we we'll find that you know. See, I'm just gonna lay it on the. You have bit. no idea how wonderful it is that we have a guest who finally tells Father. No, it's Sam so now. good. I'm so excited <laughs> about this. It's like it's so cool. So um, there are angels. In Middle Earth, and they're the Valar. Right. So we have angels in there. Um, they're called gods, but that's because that's the sort of perception of the people of Middle Earth. These uh, are clear; uh, they're they're uh, angels. Okay. Um, mm. And he says that the people of Middle Earth call on the Valar as a Catholic would on a saint, knowing that their power was limited and derivative. Mm. So they're they're angels. Um, so, the, but the eagles have a really interesting resonance because they are part of that fundamentally Catholic view. I think, um, because Tolkien had a great personal devotion to St. John the Evangelist, whose symbol is the eagle. eagle. And if you think about it, all of these eagles, they are always signs of, of the catastrophe, the good catastrophe. They're signs of hope. They're signs of the inbreaking of providence into the world. So the fact that they are associated with St. John, who's the writer of you know the fourth gospel, is I think not coincidental. So I think we do have that Catholic resonance there. And isn't the pub where the Inklings used to hang out the eagle and child or something like that? The yeah, the, the bird and baby. Yeah, the eagle yeah, child, known known to the Inklings as the bird and baby, <laughs> from a Greek from a Greek myth. Um, <laughs> so okay, there we go. All right. Well, n- let's go into Tom Bombadil a little bit because actually, this is this is a tutorial. I, I need some help with Tom Bombadil. Um, I've never <laughs> fully understood him. I love the section of Tom Bombadil, but he he remains for me a character who I, I'm just kind of confused by. Um, I love to to think about him. Um, Nickel Creek has a great song, um, the In the House of Tom Bombadil. And uh, Matt, if we can do it, um, if if it costs me money, I'll pay for the rights to like have that just play at the end of this episode. Because um, first of all, I love Nickel Creek also. But uh, what's the deal? Well, <laughs> Tom Bombadil is mysterious. He was mysterious even to Tolkien. Um, and I think one of the reasons that Tolkien leaves him in there in this slightly mysterious way is it really does reflect reality because we don't understand everything about our world. Mm. Um, there are aspects that we just don't get. They just are what they are. And well, that that just okay. And I think that the way that not all of Middle Earth is understandable particularly from the perspective of the hobbits we mostly get the perspective of the hobbits through the lord of the rings which is really the their every reader perspective there are things that they can't understand that we can't understand so again i think that there's that essential humility of we don't have an explanation for tom bombadil neither did tolkien that's part of the point i think now, he does tell us some things about Tom Bombadil that are illuminating, um, and we can know a little bit about his history. Part of 
what's interesting is that he predates the legendarium um, in many ways, or he predates mm. Lord of the Rings. Certainly he's based on a doll. The kids had um, a, a Dutch doll that the children had named Tom Bombadil. And he's first appears in some poems that are just about Tom Bombadil being Tom. And then later Tolkien brings them into the Lord of the Rings. Now, again, he didn't have to, he didn't have to bring Tom in. So clearly he felt that this was adding something to the texture of Middle Earth. And I think it has to do partly with that, that sense of, of mystery. Um, but he says in one of his letters, um, he says, <laughs> he does a characteristic Tolkien move. He says, it's Tom Bombadil is not allegorical, you know, boom. No, there's not allegory here. And then about a sentence later, he says, Tom Bombadil is, though, he actually is the, he's the embodiment of the Oxfordshire countryside. <laughs> so he says, he's not allegorical, but actually he kind of is. Um, so we have that, that embodied, so in Tolkien's words, the embodiment of the Oxfordshire countryside in Tom. Mm. And now, now that's pretty much as much as we know about, about Tom. I like the idea that he wrote the character and isn't entirely sure who the character is. There's something kind of beautiful about that. I, when you read about how different authors conceptualize who they're who they're writing, they'll they'll talk about how the character developed in a way they didn't expect. Like as they mm-hmm. were writing, they kind of came to certain conclusions about the character, and then others they they knew exactly who this person was, who this character was from the get go. They understood exactly what they were getting. Um, so. Maybe that's a good point for us to to jump back into your into your book here. For you, as as you were writing about Tolkien, um, a character who you already knew through his through his writing, uh, what for you was the the most surprising thing to learn about the man who you already in so many ways knew because of what you had already read of his of his work? Um, well, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I don't think there were any any real surprises um in in the sense of oh i i never knew that about him um because i have been working with tolkien for a long time but there were things that were were new and then i'm like oh wow that i understood in a in a a deeper way i i know actually there were some surprises um so for one thing as i mentioned before the you discovering how important the oratory was to his formation Hmm. was um you know a, a surprise um, in that I knew that he had been raised in that context, but I didn't realize how deeply formative it was. So that was that was surprising in the sense of more things I didn't I didn't realize or didn't expect. Um, another thing that I found surprising was what a close sort of near connection he had to John Henry Newman, hmm. because somehow in my head, Newman and Tolkien are in separate kind of chronological categories. Okay, well, these are the important English literary Catholic figures, but Newman a long time ago, and then there's Tolkien. But doing the research for Tolkien's faith, I realized that they were very close in, you know, chronologically. Yeah. Um, his, his, um, and there was a massive presence of Newman. Many of the um, Oratorian fathers whom Tolkien knew, knew Newman personally. And Tolkien's guardian, Father Francis, had been Newman's student and had been served as final personal secretary. So Wow. Realizing like, that, there's like less than a generation that separates wow, that's, them, then, right? I mean, that's yeah. unbelievably close. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then to realize um, that when Tolkien's youngest son, Christopher, is, is baptized, the godmother that he chooses is actually Newman's great niece. No way. So, 
Yes. That's so yes. cool. Wow. So seeing that, that connection and that, you know, that very, you know, I mean, in a sense, you know, Newman could have been Tolkien's spiritual grandfather. You know, he's a father figure to Father Francis. Father Francis is Tolkien's second father. He's a presence who's so much nearer than I kind of conceptualized. And that was, that was really fascinating. Hmm. Um, and then the, the other surprise that I think generally surprised, um, I knew that Tolkien had deep reservations about the changes in the liturgy, um, you know, in the sixties. And I was basically prepared to see him as, you know, rejecting, you know, sort of Vatican II ideas in general, and then realizing that he was so much more nuanced than I expected um, doing a really deep dive into the details of the chronology. When did Tolkien make a remark about the liturgy? What was the liturgy actually like at that moment? I mean, I did research. I got to look at, um, you know, the the bilingual missiles during the transitional period of the sixties. Mm. Very, very specialist stuff. Um, and realizing that Tolkien, first of all, his major objection was to the loss of Latin and to the pretty bad English translation that replaced it. It's linguistic. He's not actually objecting to the Novus Ordo. Mm. Um, mm. He's objecting fundamentally to the botching of the language, which makes sense yeah. given what he loved. He, right. he given was his, who he Latin. is, yeah. And, and he also understood how much language matters and how a bad translation can destroy the true meaning of a text. Yeah, but I, I discovered that he actually had a very mature and nuanced view about these things. For instance, the in the 1950s, they did a reform of the Holy Week liturgies, still in Latin, but a very dramatic reshaping of the liturgies and the, the times. And it made Evelyn Waugh just lose his mind. Um, he hated it so much. Um, Tolkien actually wrote that he approved of these revisions in principle. He said that he felt sad personally to see the old liturgies go because they were so familiar and he and he loved them. But he said, this is, these are his words, that the new liturgies were more suitable for the lives of modern Christians. Hmm. Uh, he recognized we live in a modern era, people have nine to five jobs. It just wasn't, wasn't doing what it needed to do to help people engage with Holy Week. Hmm. And he was able to separate his personal attachment to the need for the reform. And we see this, you know, again and again as he's talking about Vatican II. Um, you know, he's able to to say, you know, I, he even says in one letter, "I'm neither a reformer nor an embalmer." Um, he's aware that there's dangers of too aggressive reform, yeah. but he also is very clear that embalming and nostalgia are also dangerous. Mm. Um, and that part doesn't get quoted so often with Tolkien. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I was actually quite struck by how if you read what he wrote in chronological context, you realize that he, he got quite emotional in speaking to his, his friends and family about the loss of Latin. And he, and he, didn't, he didn't like some of the changes in the liturgy itself. He was sorry to see that there were fewer genuflections, for instance. And he did the totally typical Tolkien thing. Is first he kind of loses his temper privately. And then, and then he cools down and he's able to say, well, you know, I regret this, but I see, you know, why this is happening, that sort of thing. So that was very, very interesting. And the fact that he never signed, he, he was not a signatory of the Agatha Christie adult, for instance. Mm. Um, people often assume that he was, and he, he wasn't. Um, he chose to, 
you know, not not make a big deal about it. Since you bring up the Agatha Christie indult, would you uh, just can, tell can our we... listeners what that is? Oh, sorry, <laughs> I was being a bit a bit in house. Um, well, for, so for, when... for Matt, it's okay; he doesn't know. No. Yeah, it's for, it's for me. <laughs> Uh, so when the Nobis Order came into effect, um, there were uh, and the older form was removed from usage in England, a number of literary cultural figures um, made a petition to the Pope to say, "Can we please keep the the Latin liturgy, the old form?" Um, and it's called the Agatha, and, and, he, and the Pope gave an indul, gave permission to keep it, and it's colloquially called the Agatha Christie indul because Agatha Christie was one of the signatories. And apparently the Pope was a fan of Agatha Christie and he saw her name and he's like, oh, that was cool. Um, <laughs> yeah. Even just, the Pope's like celebrities. I, was, I think exactly. the, the idea of the Pope reading Agatha Christie novels is is really fun. I, I appreciate <laughs> that very, very much. Well, you know, and actually, Agatha Christie is one of Tolkien's favorite authors. Really? So, yeah. He, lo- he loved Agatha Christie's mysteries. I didn't know, you know that. That's cool. All right. Well, speaking of while we're speaking of of, of liturgy here, and, and we're in the the midst of the Eucharistic revival, this is a theme that Tolkien takes on and his spiritual reflections on the Eucharist. And and you make the note here in your book about the the places where in his journal Tolkien would note down when he had the opportunity to go to confession, when he had the opportunity to a, attend mass, and when he had the opportunity to receive communion. So, can we talk a little bit about why the Eucharist is something so important? In Tolkien's life, well, he—I mean, he—he he developed a, just a strong Eucharistic devotion quite early in life, and this, I think, is part of his formation at the Oratory. The Oratorians have a pretty strong Eucharistic devotion, um, and for instance, the um, there's a Eucharistic practice fostered by the Oratorians called the Forty Hours Devotion, mm-hmm. um, where they'll have adoration of the Eucharist at for for forty straight hours, either at one church or at divided among several um and and tolkien participated in this we know this from one of his letters um he actually had a, a sort of a vision or a perception he calls it um during one of these it's quite a profound moment for him and mm-hmm. it's interesting to note that the 40 hours devotion characteristically oratorian and also quite a new devotion it, it wasn't a time-honored thing it was something that the oratorians brought in with you know when they came mm-hmm. to england mm-hmm. Um, and so this is this is something he feels quite strongly about early in his life um, that that the, he has a very keen sense of the presence of the Lord in the Blessed Sacrament, and this remains with him you know, his entire life. Um, we saw this as you noted in his in his wartime journal um, where he's he's aware of the opportunity to receive communion. Um, interestingly, we see it also, you know, after the war, he's teaching at Leeds. Um, and he goes through quite a long stretch that's very barren in his spiritual life. He he says later, writing to one of his sons, he says, I almost cease to practice my religion. Hmm. Uh, and he's very sort of honest about it. He doesn't say exactly how long it is, but based on the markers he gives, um, it, it it's several years at least. It's a substantial stretch. But the interesting thing is it's not a crisis of faith. And he doesn't completely cease to practice. He almost ceased. But he says that he he felt a starving hunger. He's aware of the presence of Christ in the tabernacle, patiently waiting for him, and having this sense of hunger, and for whatever reason, not feeling that he's able to, to fulfill that hunger. And I think that's striking in the sense that his Eucharistic 
devotion persists with him even in a barren stretch when he somehow feels that he can't respond to it uh, which is very interesting um and then you know later in his life he again has a strong recognition of the, the value of really grasping that the eucharist is objectively our lord present and he writes these wonderful letters to his son michael um this is in the, the early 60s during a time when this is still before the second vatican council so we're talking about the the old liturgy um and his son had been had said to him that he was having you know some difficulties with his faith it was kind of sagging um he had been put off by the you know the bad example of some of the his catholic you know colleagues at the school he was teaching at and tolkien writes in this marvelous letter of advice this really kind of counterintuitive and interesting way he says to his his son michael go to a badly done mass go to the worst mass you can can find where the people are inattentive and bored and badly dressed and you know clearly not showing reverence and the priest is mumbling or he's vulgar and you know you know possibly immoral and um he says go and then pray with the people you're you're with and there's such pastoral insight there mm. because he's aware that his son is being scandalized by the behavior of other Catholics. So he's deliberately advising him to put himself in a, in a place where he's going to be scandalized by this behavior and consciously to pray with them and for them. So as to strike at the heart of any sort of Pharisaism or, or spiritual pride. Um, and also by focusing on, you know, a mass that's badly done, a liturgy that's badly done. And he's talking about what we would now call, you know, the, the traditional Latin mass. So it wasn't all roses and rainbows. Right. He says, these are, he says, these were all too easy to find. It helps him, um, you know, and the effect is that it helps focus on attention on the objective reality of the mass. It, is good for a mass to be celebrated beautifully. Tolkien is there's, there's no there's no question that this is what Tolkien believes. But by deliberately as a as an act of faith, as a as a spiritual exercise, and he calls it an exercise, to go to this badly done mass, it reminds him Christ is present, whether the liturgy is mumbled or people are paying attention or whatnot. And that's the important thing. Yeah. It's good for there to be a beautiful liturgy, but that's not the point. And I find that so spiritually wise. Yeah. It's also so characteristic of that, that very humility that you're talking about before with the hobbits to, to not put yourself as the, the final arbiter, judge, jury, everything else, but to rather, Simply be there, and and be be part of it. To step in, to to pray along with, and to recognize that it's not always about having everything exactly as you would have it, but sometimes about these these other spaces. Yeah, and he says something similar with regard to sermons because he grew up at the Birmingham Oratory, where there was a very high standard. They were excellent preachers. They were knowledgeable. They knew the scriptures. They were very educated men. And then he's in a regular parish, um, and he's quite clear that he says in one of his letters that the the usual standard is pretty low. And he <laughs> offers, he says, his advice is always take whatever is being said in this, whatever bit of truth you can glean, however small or cliched, and wow. apply it to yourself. And and so he gives a kind of recipe for however trite the sermon might be, 
try to find the one truth you can identify and meditate on how it applies to you. Mm. Don't criti- well, don't critique it for its style. Don't argue with it. See if you can make that application. Again, so humble. And, and to bring it full circle, that's kind of that idea of, of providence breaking, breaking through that, that he so emphasized with Frodo not wishing pity on Gollum, but then being saved by that pity, Hmm. you know, taking that one small bit of truth. You know, and not, and I, I really like you used, I don't know if it was his word or your word, but you said pharisaical. That was my um, word. It was your word. But that, that kind of struck me too, that I think that, that shows his spiritual wisdom and your spiritual wisdom. Uh, because I, I do think that that is a problem in, in the church today in that, we, you know, not that we should, not that it's wrong to be upset with things that aren't, that, with, with a mass that isn't well said, you know? Um, but I, and maybe I should just say it's something that I do. I often go into homilies with my guard up, hmm. you know, and rather than go uh, go into a homily with my guard up and leaving it there, it would be wiser for me to say, where's the truth? Because, because the Lord is provident, you know, he, he is over this, um, metaphorically speaking, (laughs) uh, you know, but, but, but his voice will break through and, and it's almost laughable, right? It's almost laughable to, to suggest that he wouldn't. Hmm. Yeah. You know, so I, that really struck me. I just wanted to say that that really struck me. Yeah. And I, I have to say, you know, doing, doing the research and writing Tolkien's faith, um, has actually been very good for my spiritual life. Because just to be immersed in this, the, the wisdom of this man who had a tough life and he didn't just coast. He had struggles with his faith. He had moments when he lapsed in his, you know, he lapsed in practicing his faith. You know, as a young man, that those, those years of all, I almost ceased to practice my religion. Mm-hmm. He lost his temper. He admits he wasn't a perfect father. He was a real guy. Like, I, I, he wasn't a plaster saint on a pedestal. You know, he was a yeah. real man. Right. And you get the sense that the spiritual life was not easy for him. Mm-hmm. You know, he talks about how how difficult it is to have a sense of peace um, in amongst trying and you know, trials and tribulations. He's writing to his son, who is you know a pilot in the Royal Air Force in World War II. Yeah, he had Tolkien mm-hmm. has a few things on his mind. His son is in the Air Force where the life expectancy is measured in weeks for the for the recruits. And okay, of course he has trouble finding peace, but he yeah. talks about the need to aspire to it, to make a concrete act of faith. Um, the fact that he he shows that it's about persevering and about making the effort, about falling down and getting up again, mm-hmm. um, about repentance and you know, conversion. That's so encouraging. You know, he shows you like this is what you. This is the the fruit of a life well lived, and it's not easy, but it's but it's beautiful. Mm. And I just found that whole picture, his humility, his perseverance, um, just yes. very encouraging. Hmm. There is there is such tremendous power in a true example. You know, like we have a tendency. I like that you're saying plaster saints, <laughs> right? Because you look at them and 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 their eyes are like a little too big. <laughs> but but um, I I 
I'm a, I, I love Catholic media, you know? That's why I'm in this particular position. Um, and I watched a, a video uh, surrounding the apparitions, the alleged apparitions in Medjugorje. And, and this is the conversation, not to steer it to whether or not they're true. That's not really what I'm interested in <laughs> saying. But rather, um, someone proposed a, as evidence that they weren't, uh, the way that the life of one of the visionaries ended up going, uh, namely n- not t- necessarily towards this path of holiness. Um, and I found it really humbling because there were there were two things that Father Gregory Pine, who was the one he was speaking with, ended up saying. One was, you know, it shows that like proximity isn't this isn't going to be a direct connection to holiness. Mm-hmm. Um, and it shows that not every visionary <laughs> sees, right, the Blessed Mother or sees our Lord, and then it's like, bang, monastery. You know, <laughs> like, you know, it's, it's, life can be difficult, you know, and, and even, I admit, right, I was a believer in that phrase that you said that the Lord only gives you what you can take, you know, and, and the idea that, like, no, sometimes he lets you break. Just kind of terrifying, but it is a little terrifying. (laughs) For goodness sakes, we're all gonna die. You know, (laughs) like, like it's we're quite literally we will break. Um, But but I think I guess if I'm pulling it all together or attempting to, um, it really is a testament to the fact that saints. I hope hope hopefully some of them were, but I would I would wager that the majority of saints didn't appear always as they do on their holy cards you know like it's a safe wager matt right yeah (laughs) Yeah. you know and and but but it's something that it is a safe wager and i recognize that but it is something also that i think it's a massive misconception Hmm. you know i really i think that a a lot of catholics do look at saints like plaster saints you know and that's a lot of harm i think yes absolutely it's so discouraging yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway, I, but but he's the he's the example, I think. Um, and if I were to awkwardly segue it into a question, it would be: Do you think he will be a canonized saint one day? <laughs> That's a good question. I think, I think someday. Yes. Um, I, I, I think in five. We'll see. Five hundred years from now, I, I think would be a pretty a pretty safe bet. Um, yeah. I'm I'm kind of unbothered by it, um, and I think Tolkien would be sort of unbothered by it. Um, yeah. And it's interesting because there's a difference between do I think he well do I think he is a saint um, as as it happens I personally think that he is enjoying the beatific vision um, now um, I have him in my own personal litany of saints mm. um, do I think that the cause for canonization should be made no actually I don't um, because I think you know especially in thinking about preparing Tolkien's faith for an audience of everybody who loves Tolkien, not just Catholics by any means. I wanted to speak to everybody to show him, Mm -hmm. to show his interesting and beautiful life. A lot of non-Christians and non-Catholics are massively confused by canonization. Mm. And it's partly because of this misconception about saints being plaster saints. Yeah. A lot of people, and sometimes for good reason, think that if Catholics talk about making him a saint, well, first of all, they think that we're making him a saint as opposed to God. <laughs> right, yeah. They recognize it. Right. But they also think, more significantly, they, they think that we mean he was perfect in every way. 
and that we idolize him in the sense of everything he ever said was right. Everything mm -hmm. he ever did was right. He had no flaws. Well, nonsense. Tolkien had lots of flaws and he would have been the first one to admit it. Mm. Um, so I think that putting him forward for a you know, cause or canonization would needlessly confuse people and put them off and, and discourage them from learning about his life um, for no good reason. Yeah. If he's enjoying the beta vision, he's enjoying it. And he doesn't, <laughs> he doesn't need us to put a blessed or a saint in front of his name. Like right, he, yeah. he's completely fine. <laughs> right. um, so I don't think, I don't think it would be a good idea to, to put forward with that, um, to, to go forward with that. I just don't think this is the, this is the moment. Right. Um, but I do think it is a good thing to talk about him as a, example of a good man mm -hmm. and that involves admitting that he wasn't perfect um, but we can i mean just the very fact that he was a good man he loved his wife he stayed married to her they were married for 55 years they also had quite a difficult marriage it wasn't all just sunshine and sweetness um mm. but that makes his fidelity more beautiful you know the, the frank realism of writing about marriage in his letters you know he talks to his he's writing to his son who's who's contemplating marriage context is important these letters when he's writing about marriage his son is contemplating getting married to somebody he hasn't known very long so his father's a little bit like okay son hold on let's let's you know pump cool. the brakes <laughs> um very natural in a, in a parent to be like, wait, wait a second. Um, so he says that, you know, a lot of times, you know, and again, he's speaking from a male perspective. Um, he's saying, well, you know, you, you, these men, you, you, you fall in love. It's all romance. And then, you know, the romance kind of wears off. And if you, and he says that if you continue kind of hunting for your perfect partner, you'll end up in the divorce court. Mm -hmm. He has this great line. He says, your real soulmate is the person you're married to. <laughs> Boom. Just yeah. done. And it's just so realistic. And he yeah. even admits that as a man, he could happily enjoy begetting a couple hundred children. But because the truth of revelation, not natural impulses, revelation says no, he says, okay. <laughs> I mean, I just find that just so honest that he's admitting yeah. like, yeah, that'd be kind of fun, but I can't do that because God has clearly delineated the role of marriage and I accept that. Right. But he's honest about that, um, yeah. about the difficulties. Um, and when he talks about the romance at the beginning and then it kind of wearing off, you know he's thinking about his own marriage, which mm -hmm. had a very romantic beginning. And then it got tough, but it it lasted and they they had a they had a beautiful marriage. And mm -hmm. he loved Edith. He loved his wife with every ounce of his being. And he looked after her so well. And, you know, it's it just the letters, seeing them, you know, there's a lovely photograph of them, um, both elderly, that I, that I was able to get permission to include in, in Tolkien's Faith. And just seeing the two elderly people just laughing and smiling together, that's the fruits of this fidelity through so much difficulty. Yeah. Um, and that, that's the case with, with so much in his life that we see the beauty of it because he's, he's faithful um, and it's hard, but he sticks with it. And I think in the modern day, we have so many famous authors, celebrities, whatnot, that didn't stick with it. They might have had a you know warm character, but they 
they gave in to impulse or they they didn't strive for for good they they fell and they stayed fallen down rather than picking themselves back up again and, mm -hmm. and trying again um and i think that there's so few examples of this kind of genuinely good life um that people are almost a little skeptical like is is this for real you know is this is this guy for real like all of all of his children, you know, spoke of how loving a father he was, how intensive he was as a father. Mm. They also said that he wasn't perfect. Sometimes he could be <laughs> kind of cranky with them, didn't understand them, you know, that kind of thing. Right. Um, he he himself said in later years that he didn't feel that he had given them enough religious instruction when they were younger. Mm. Wow. Um, he just admits that he he says, "I failed you. I failed you as a father. I didn't teach you enough." Which might be good um, news for a lot of parents listening to this who who often feel that way, or grandparents who feel this way, that they that they haven't done enough to, to hand on the faith of Tolkien, the guy who wrote this, uh, at least implicitly, if not explicitly Catholic work, who wrote this very, very heavily influenced by his faith work of, of literature that he shared with his children and wanted them to know through and through. If he didn't do enough to, to hand on the faith, then, then who possibly could, right? Well, I think, I mean, and I think actually he... He probably didn't, um, because one of the, his daughter Priscilla had a very in, interesting insight in an inter, uh, interview I read that I, I talk about in Tolkien's faith that he that he had trouble talking about the faith to them when they when they were younger. Mm. Um, but we see when the when the children are, are older, we see lots of direct discussion of the faith in letters. Um, so I think he just had difficulty trying to articulate talking about the faith to to smaller children and kind of didn't do it mm. and felt he should have and he probably should have i mean i, I think we can own up that he should have done more right. yeah, um, yeah. Uh, but yeah. then we see that he again he's he's persisting he's he doesn't just say oh i failed you know when you were younger i give up right no he brings up these theological topics when they're older he buys them books about the faith um as when they're older so he's mm. he's trying he's trying to make up for what deficiencies he had exactly. again he's not perfect but he's persevering in the faith he's trying to do the right thing and that combination of not being perfect having to grow having to struggle but trying to be good trying to to do the right thing that is a combination we need to know about we really do yeah now tolkien is you'll see this quote circulating a lot online that he says in in everything but size i am a hobbit right so he he very much identifies with with the hobbits um i i love that idea i mean i, I like to eat breakfast also um, but there's <laughs> i i've never been able to fully that is not the only requirement <laughs> but i've never really been able to fully like say yeah i i identify with the hobbits like i want to be aragorn and yeah. as close as i come to aragorn is is people are sometimes surprised that i'm i'm not younger than I actually am. They they expect me to be younger, and I'm I'm older than I look sometimes. Um, I, I sometimes feel like Faramir, like like nobody's really paying attention, nobody really notices me. But at the end of the day, I'm Boromir, I'm like just kind of <laughs> greedy, and I want stuff for myself. Get out of my way! Oh no, I really regret this. Oh no, I really regret this. And you know, so that's where I find myself identifying. Where would you, Doctor Ordway? place yourself in terms of the creatures of, of middle earth well if we look at the the sort of the whole slew of characters as as you've put it um i found i mean i've i've loved the lord of the rings and the hobbit 
literally as long as I can remember. Um, I do not remember a time in which they were not part of my imaginative world. Um, so naturally, this is long before the movies. Um, I too am older than I look. Um, uh, so I, as a young woman, like in my in my twenties, I really identified with Aowen. Um, I also fenced competitively. I fenced saber. You're a shield so, maiden of Rohan in the flesh. That is so cool. Yes. yes. <laughs> so there is a definite, definite identification with Aowen. Yeah. But but I again, Tolkien is just so. He's a master of characterization because now as a middle-aged scholar, I identify with Sam. I mean, he's goes through all these epic adventures, all of these epic things. And he just wants to go home and do his garden. Yes. I, I just, I love, yes. I love that. <laughs> he wants go, just, he wants to go home, have a good breakfast and, and mess about in his garden. I, I just, I think that's so beautiful that Sam, I mean, he is the hero of the Lord of the Rings. Tolkien's quite clear on this. Yes. Um, and fundamentally, Sam is just this ordinary chap who just wants to go back to an ordinary life. And his huge reward, the huge payoff for Sam, the hero of the entire epic of Lord of the Rings, is that he does get to go back to his ordinary life. Hmm. That's actually pretty radical if you think about it. He does not become king of the hobbits or whatever. Sam has no special honors. He, he becomes mayor. Like, oh, okay. Uh, he's mayor of Hobbiton. <laughs> and <laughs> and he has a family. And this is and this is everything that he wants. I, I think that if we can have the humility of vision that we can want that, as opposed to say Denethor, who is the opposite. You know, Denethor Denethor interesting. I mean, Denethor has good characteristics. He he's almost a hero but he allows it to be turned in the wrong direction. Um, and he's not content with being a good steward. He has to be the one in charge. Um, you know, he's not content with having these two lovely sons. He, they have to be his sons in exactly the way that he, he wants. Um, so I think, you know, part of the moral ecology of, of the Lord of the Rings is, you know, be Sam, don't be Denethor. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a great message to end on. Uh, be Sam, yeah. don't be Denethor. Uh, Dr. Holly Ordway, thank you so much. This has been great. Um, I know yeah, we've got we've got to let you go and, and get to your next thing, but uh, the book is Tolkien's Faith, a spiritual biography. It's available from Word on Fire. Uh, please check it out. And Dr. Ordway, thank you again so much for, for being part of this with us today. It's been an absolute delight. Hey, everybody. This is Matt Sparazza. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of The Tangent. Remember, this week's episode is longer than 30 minutes. So if you're enjoying this episode, you can finish it on your favorite podcast platform or on the Veritas app. If you like what we're doing, don't forget to follow us at the tangent underscore Catholic on Instagram. It's one of the ways that we get our content out to you. So once again, thank you for listening and see you next time on The Tangent. God bless.